0: a room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com/governance. IBM. Let's create
1: Fear is important, you know, it's the thing that stops you from like putting your hand in a fire, you know, or it's that kind of niggling intuition that tells you like, this is good or, or you should be afraid of this. But I think if you let your fear drive, it can really shut you down and kind of, you know, put you in a place where you're not going to have a lot of kind of internal accessibility. And I think a healthy amount of fear gives you an edge, you know? and it can make you pretty elastic and, and not feel too constricted about like whatever intrusive thoughts are happening and so it's my favorite kind of fear it's a fear that like I can deal with that you know that we can give some oxygen but it's not sucking the life out of the experience
0: that was Erica Chitty Cohen I'm Sam Fergoso. this is Talk Easy welcome to the show Erica Chitty Cohen has had many lives. She's worked in PR, she was a chef in New York City, and now, most recently, a doula. In fact, her work as a doula has transitioned into various projects. Earlier this month, her debut book called Nurture, A Modern Guide to Pregnancy, Birth, Early Motherhood, and Trusting Yourself and Your Body, was published by Chronicle Books. She's also taken her doula insights and created Loom, an L.A.-based hub designed to provide evidence-based education about the reproductive cycle, pregnancy, and parenting. I've known Erica for a few months now. She's one of those people you meet and are immediately drawn to. There's an openness to her energy, a belief that she sees you're good. I imagine that's probably in part what makes her such an in-demand companion for women about to give birth. There's trust. There's so much to Erica's story and outlook on pregnancy and birth and motherhood that I really didn't know. I went to her house to record a podcast about her new book and her new business and seemingly this new chapter in her life. And of course, in turn, I received some kind of education. Perhaps this episode will do the same for you. Now, finally, here is Erica Chitty Cohen. What's your full name?
1: Erica Chitty Cohen.
0: That's your full name? You use the full name?
1: Yeah. Well, my full name is actually... I
0: I knew... This this is a podcast (laughs) where we only do honesty. This is what happens when I'm in your living room.
1: Yeah. My full name is much longer. So I'm... First generation Nigerian American. I feel like I say that a lot lately. I don't know why, but.
0: You've been saying it a lot.
1: Yeah, people. I just, I I feel because it prefaces so much of my behavior and like my way of thinking. So both my grandparents on my mother and my father's side decided to get involved with naming me, which is very typical in Nigerian culture and in Igbo culture. So my full name is Erica Chinere Ijoma Injaku Chidema. Chitty Cohen. Mm. It's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. If you look at my, if you look at my, <laughs> when I lived in South Africa, they have like a an ID book. It's it has like every single name. And when I moved back here, I was like, yep, just gonna, really just do three names.
0: Concise. Yeah. Well, also imagine putting all of that uh, like on your Instagram. Yeah,
1: it'd be really great.
0: Uh, white people would be really confused.
1: Yeah, they'd be stressed.
0: They'd be like, ah, I don't know if I can follow no. too many names. Too many
1: names. Don't know what she's
0: about. It's don't know what she's about.
1: Not not clear. If unclear. She, if she
0: can't be easily defined. I want no part. Yeah,
1: gotta go. Not not sure at all.
0: You're born in Urbana, Illinois.
1: Whoa, details. <laughs> no, it's awesome. No one ever tells me where I'm born. I feel like they forget. <laughs>
0: Someone uh, does research for this show. <laughs> That's uh, what shows do.
1: Got it. Yeah. Got it. Um,
0: it's interesting you're born there. I mean, I'm, I think you know I'm from Chicago. Yes, I do know. And that. I've spent time in Champaign-Urbana for uh, the film festival there called Ebert Fest. Oh. And, yeah, uh, of course. Of course. Yeah. But, you, but you only spent a, a small amount of time there.
1: Yes. I think we lived there till I was two or three. My... Father was finishing off his medical residency at champaign Urbana, Illinois, mm-hmm. and yeah, it was a two-year stint, very brief. And um, I remember my mom describes my birth story as it was there was like six feet of snow, and she had to like get the shovel out to get the sleet out to get into the car, and my dad was like.
0: Wait, why was why was she shoveling?
1: Well, so he was doing his residency, so at the time he was already at the hospital, oh. and so it was one of those things. I know how that sounds, actually, but I think it was like it sounds she
0: was fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. She was
1: probably in early labor, and like my mom's a nurse; she's pretty dexterous, and I think just like, "I'll do it," and mm-hmm. you know, get going. Um, yeah, and yeah. Anyway, birth stories, no hospital. Dad.
0: <laughs> no hospital. So it, it was, you weren't born in a hospital. Oh, I was. You were? Oh. Okay. I was born
1: in a hospital. Yeah. I was born at the university
0: hospital. You said uh, in, in another podcast that you love conflict. Um, I have to say, don't you think this started before you were born? Like before you were born, your mother had to literally. <laughs> <laughs> Move snow so that you could be uh you know for you to come into this earth,
1: yeah, it's actually interesting that you say that I mean I think everyone's family of origin is pretty complicated. mine is no different, and I do think that you know my parents' relationship had a lot of complexity and yeah, there's definitely there definitely was conflict there. My parents are divorced mm. um so that conflict ensued and uh, kind of led to their divorce. But my mom's also a really strong person too. And so as much as there's this maybe affinity for conflict, I'm also really good at getting anchored and not really getting untethered when there is conflict or discord. I kind Mm -hmm. of can get a little bit more centered when I'm, when I have a lot of kind of uncomfortable things going on.
0: I know you're not going to like this, <laughs> but the New Yorker wrote of you, you uh, she has short treadlocks and the air of a woman who knows okay. best.
1: <laughs> Some may say that.
0: The New Yorker said that. That means something, uh, but also it seems to be in line with what you're talking about.
1: I think so. I, you know, I, I feel in my home, I think the way that I was raised, and I guess it's embedded in. Nigerian culture in some ways it's a very kind of upwardly mobile pretty well educated kind of I think across the board in some sense and I definitely grew up in a home where my mother knew best and that was definitely imparted and there's always this
0: that was abundantly obvious (laughs)
1: Yeah. she took a shovel she's like i'm gonna when to get to the hospital um but, I don't
0: know if that's her knowing best or her being like look this is I the situation go. I gotta have a kid here like I'm busy <laughs>
1: gotta get out gotta get to the hospital <laughs> but I think in the terms of the best knowing best I you know that this is like maybe a little circuitous but when we moved to South Africa we moved there just after apartheid ended and I think in South Africa, because apartheid was so systemic in there for such a long time, the black South African identity was very much more subdued and, you know, much more constricted. There wasn't a lot of like, you know, I don't don't want to say frivolity because that sounds really trite, but I think West African culture or even maybe like and Caribbean culture, which in some ways is like diaspora of West African culture, were much more kind of like upperly mobile and like you know, we think we know what we're doing, sometimes even when we don't. And it's just kind of embedded in the culture. So I do feel that that comment about me is <laughs> weirdly kind of just a cultural comment. I think you meet any Nigerian person, they kind of have a weird thing mm-hmm. of feeling like they know what's best, even <laughs> if they don't. So, yeah.
0: I don't think they thought about it in a cultural context.
1: Yeah, they probably do not
0: they, I think it just sounded like a nice thing to say. Yeah,
1: that's probably right. It I could like, just oh, take that. That's <laughs> a good
0: compliment. But also, I like your long-winded explanation. I'm so
1: long-winded;
0: <laughs> it's stressful sometimes.
1: But I
0: the joys of editing. We don't even know. <laughs> don't even know. No, I, I really gonna save everyone from it. No, I really liked it. And also, I, I, um, I didn't have that context, and I don't think most people do. I mean, I think people are approaching you from a place of ignorance.
1: Yeah, probably most of the time, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Can we talk about, you go to to South Africa and you live there at what age? Mm.
1: Uh, I think we moved there when I was nine, eight or nine. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So at age eight or nine, you moved to South Africa. I'm interested in, do you remember your grandmother at all?
1: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because my paternal grandmother passed away when my dad was 17. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting there is there's always been this comparison of me to her, although i never met her. My mom's mother, Catherine, is still alive. However, I don't really have a, I have a very thin memory of her because she didn't really spend a lot of time with us growing up. She would like come over to the States and you know, my mom is one of six kids, my dad is one of eight kids. So she would kind of bounce around from family to family. So in terms of a memory, not that strong either way, but I do feel a very deep connection to my paternal grandmother just because she did a lot of this a lot of similar work to what I do now. Right. And it's something I only found out like much later in life. Mm And, you know, growing up my dad would kind of call me, which in Ibo means like mother or grandmother. And it was this kind of like subtle kind of invocation my whole life. And then to find out I kind of ended up doing a lot of her stuff, it just always makes me feel connected to her, even though I never met her.
0: I, I found that interesting in, in research of thinking like, oh, this is like a job being passed down in a family in some way.
1: Yeah, for sure. It does feel that way. And my whole family is pretty medical. And I never really resonated with that very traditional kind of clinician trajectory. And so um, kind of landing up with the dual work and being more involved in a community educational component just feels really right and in a way is still paying homage to kind of my lineage.
0: Was it ever confusing when your dad called you mother?
1: (laughs) I think, well, it's funny, you know, it's so interesting. Like my dad... Because he moved here really Other young. By the
0: way, you rolled your eyes and you said, oh, it's so interesting. <laughs> Which is like, are you annoyed that it's interesting? Or?
1: No, I think because my parents got divorced You know, when I was probably, I think, 12 or 13. So I was parentified pretty young mm-hmm. and definitely took on a maternal role in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and So you
0: remember them together?
1: Yes, okay. definitely. And um, I took on a pretty maternal role and me being called now was like from like, you know, four or five, six years old, but I kind of ended up assuming that kind of motherly role. So when you ask me if it feels awkward, it's like, yes, and not really, because I was kind of playing that role in a lot of ways anyway. So I
0: It I th- sounds like you were coached.
1: Yeah, I think so. Not even so much coaching. It's I think any child that's in a environment where there is you know, divorce or separation, you tend to kind of build a certain set of skills mm. to survive potentially, or you don't create, and, the, and and those survival skills typically are hopefully healthy or they're maladaptive. And, you know, there's all these other things that happen as a result of, you know, that not so great skill set or behavior. So I, I don't know if I was coached, I just kind of had to adapt. But I think most of my adaptations were positive um, and in many ways kind of set me up for the skill set of what I do now, which is kind of working really closely with people through, you know, like major life transitions.
0: Yeah. What skills did you learn then that you use now?
1: Well, I think, you know, intuiting people's needs and kind of being able to really assess the environment and see like where and what's needed potentially before the other person feels that or even sees it for themselves. And I think that is something that, you know, you learn to do as a child when there is like challenges kind of in your household, you kind of adapt to people's needs. I think also just, you know, like you said earlier, I kind of feel good or I'm attracted to, not necessarily, I'm definitely not attracted to conflict. I'm not like, show me where it is. But I think I'm more, um, as there's more chaos or there's lots of unpredictability, I'm able to just get more and more flatlined and more and more kind of focused and kind of myopic. And I think that's a skill that I was able to kind of, you know, cultivate through my childhood.
0: So in the wake of crisis, you're calm.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. It t- it takes a lot to really like, like untether me.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty admirable quality.
1: I guess so. I think it's something that I've just I don't really internalize its value that much, just because it's such a <laughs> long term skill. It's like it's just there now, but I do feel like you know, in the past couple years, with all the change and like the workload and things like that, I think it's just been a skill I've just been grateful to have as opposed to, like, thinking about it that much.
0: I mean, I imagine it's helpful in terms of your work as a doula.
1: Yeah, I think so. I feel, especially for people moving through it for the first time, or even if it's their second or third child and there's a kind of deviation from their previous experience, I kind of am able to... Just hold the the space and kind of meet them where they're at and approach the situation with a lot of objectivity and curiosity and non judgment and kind of just reminding them that we are where we are and let's just do the best with what we have as opposed to catastrophizing and thinking okay what's going to happen next or you know being nostalgic and I say nostalgic not in the positive sense like you know like I think I think the not the prefix, but I think it has the prefix. It's like nostalgia, like you think it actually is connected to pain. Like you kind of take yourself back to like how things were and you're in pain. And if you catastrophize, then you're in pain too. So Mm -hmm. trying to just keep people present, which requires a lot of direction because when you're in that kind of fight or flight state, it's so easy to be in the past or in in the future. So kind of being able to stay really calm and anchored I think really – helps people. And I can do that because it's not, it's not, it's not my birth. It's not my experience. And I think that's also helpful having that separation, you know, as, as a doula.
0: Can you walk me through your first day on the job?
1: Mm. Oh my God.
0: You almost spit out your drink.
1: <laughs> I, don't, I just didn't, I don't think I saw the, that question coming, but I haven't even thought about my first day on the job in a long time. But you know what? I will say that my first birth was really incredible Because it was my gateway drug, you know, it was.
0: Love those drugs. (laughs)
1: Love them. I was like, "Mm, this is great. I'm going to keep doing this. (laughs) I worked with a really intelligent woman who, you know, really didn't have any preconceived notions about what her birthing experience was going to be like. And she was just really open. And at the time I was still pretty much a novice in some sense, but I had this kind of innate understanding of just how to make people feel comfortable and how to help people feel like, you know, they can get from point A to point B. And, you know, she had this labor that was just so, so contained, you know, that she, she birthed in silence, which, you know, almost a decade later, like if I kind of wipe my brain, like births like that are pretty rare, but she was so Internalized and like quiet the whole birth and was able to do it unmedicated and was just like very resilient but also still reaching out to myself and to her partner and it was just this really beautiful experience and it wasn't it wasn't kind of sanctimonious in any in any way we were in a hospital and you know, she was open to medication if she needed it, but she was able to create this like sacred kind of autonomous experience without negating herself, myself or her partner. And it was just, I felt so honored to be a part of it. And, and she really felt that like me being there and, you know, helping her with the breathing and the massage and just keeping her partner calm. And it was, it was in many ways, like, the perfect birth. And mm. I've had many incredible births since then, but it was so formative for me. And it it really gave me insight into like why this is the thing I should be doing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Was there any fear on that first one?
1: No. And it was just adrenaline and like excitement. You know, I was just like, this is so cool. Like, you know, and because we trusted each other so much, and I and she had a healthy amount of fear and then also a
0: good trust in
1: the process.
0: What do you mean by healthy amount?
1: Well, I think I can't remember who says this, but fear is important, you know, it's the thing that stops you from like putting your hand in a fire, you know, or it's that kind of niggling intuition that tells you like this is good or or you should be afraid of this. But I think if you let your fear drive, it can really shut you down and kind of you know, put you in a place where you're not going to have a lot of kind of internal accessibility. And I think a healthy amount of fear gives you an edge, you know, and it can make you pretty elastic and and not feel too constricted about like whatever intrusive thoughts are happening. And so it's my favorite kind of fear. It's a fear that like I can deal with that, you know, that we can give some oxygen, but it's not sucking the life out of the experience. And so, um, yeah, It's like it's that kind of fear. It was kind of like the healthy kind.
0: Do you find that you have more of the healthy kind the more you do this, this work?
1: I think so. Yeah, I would say that. I and I also just I kind of suspend reality every time I go to a birth because I just I just don't know. I don't.
0: So literally walk me through this. Do you like turn your phone off and like <laughs> do you like what do you wear? What do you like? To people who don't know, because most people don't, sure, give me a full walkthrough.
1: Walkthrough. Okay. Um, I know
0: maybe you haven't been asked to do this, but I, I'm very no, interested.
1: This is fun. I, I, It's like I don't even really think about my process that much, but I, I definitely have one. So, all right. If I'm on call. Do you wear white? No, but I wear <laughs> – but I'm always monochrome. I'm either in a full gray <laughs> – You know me, Sam. I'm either in a full gray outfit or a full, like, dark, green outfit yeah. or black.
0: It's best to be looking good while doing this job.
1: Well, it's n- I definitely don't look like good. I'm not like, look at this outfit. I feel great. Mm-hmm. It's very subdued because I never want to go into a birthing environment and feel dressed up. Absolutely not. Like I want to feel like I'm a f- not even there. Like I'm there, but please don't notice me. Like let me just do the work. Invisible. Invisible. Yeah. So it's like usually like a, a little, like it's a pant suit th- situation type thing. Gypsy pant thing. Is that what they call it? Anyway, so I have the outfit on. I makeup? Usually, no makeup ever. No way. Absolutely not. I'm not even really a makeup person anyway, but definitely not for that. I usually will have like my lip balm. I'll have some essential oils or certain kinds that I like to use in like a very non-woo-woo way. Just, you know, certain essential oils help with.
0: Just non woo <laughs> Just like Woo-woo. write that down. <laughs> non-woo-woo. We'll go back to
1: that. Um, There's certain essential oils that help to improve contractility, help with relaxation, et cetera. I have those in my bag. I'll usually pack a phone charger. My phone is never off. That's the thing about doula work, you know, especially when I was like kind of in my prime of it. You have like maybe – I usually have about two clients a month at the most, maybe three, and so you're kind of always on call. So you're checking in. You're trying to make sure that nobody else needs you at the time. And pretty much people will call me right – when things are starting to take off. So I usually like to build a very intimate relationship with my clients. So I want to know everything from like, when do you start feeling more contractions or, you know, as a result of like, prostaglandins, which basically help the cervix to soften and ripen, but they also provide more vascularity to your lower abdominal area. You just start to have more pickup in bowel movements. Like I want to know that because those are all little things that tell me like this thing is starting to happen.
0: I'd like to know that, but I have no idea what that meant.
1: Okay. So prostaglandins are a hormone that everyone has male or female. And it basically in pregnancy or, you know, to get labor started, it helps to soften and to ripen the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus. Mm. And when there's more prostaglandins in the body, you typically, in terms of like labor, will just have a pickup in bowel movements because it just makes there be more blood flow down in your intestinal and abdominal area. Mm. So people let me know when that kind of thing is happening. And then when contractions start, I will usually go to their home and be with them And, you know, labor, as their contractions are getting closer and closer together, we do certain kinds of breathing. There's a lot of massage. There's a lot of getting them to stay mobile. Because, you know, if your goal is to have an unmedicated birth, and that's not everybody's goal, you really want to engage gravity and kind of stay walking or like in a more clinical term, like ambulate so that you are getting the baby to drop down, engaging gravity because contractions don't work well unless the baby's like right on top of the cervix. Mm. So I'm just kind of getting them in that flow because it's really hard, I think, for partners when they see, you know, and I'm presuming, let's just say for heteronormative sake, like a husband sees his wife or girlfriend in pain and labor, it kind of sends most partners into little bit of a trauma response. Not like I can't do anything, but they feel a little inept as to how to touch the body, how to keep their partner motivated when mm. they themselves are just like, this is really hard. So as a doula, I'm like coming in and being like, okay, let's get up again. Let's try this. Let's so
0: you're describing... The helpless man who's there.
1: Or a helpless wife who's sure. there. Yeah, partner, whoever. The person
0: who's not having the yes. kids.
1: Yes, the person that's not pregnant, the person that's not in mm-hmm. labor. So, and I'm usually doing a lot of reframing and normalizing for them and for the partner because a lot of the physiological happenings that take place in early labor, for example, like vomiting is very common you know, if you haven't had a baby before and you're having contractions and you're vomiting, you're kind of like the jig is up. Like we have got to go to the hospital (laughs) when actually it's really normal. Like the body needs to clear contents so that the uterus can work better. And so just by saying that, that's going to help. Them feel like oh okay well maybe we can stay home longer and we can X mm. Y Z. Um, so so your, no-
0: your job is to mitigate craziness and and them feeling like they're insane.
1: A L- little bit, little bit, little bit of a sanity check, and then I like physically am getting in there like doing body work and you know getting them to move and and do that kind of thing. And I'm, and I'm there the whole labor, whether it's six hours or four days. Mm. Um, I'm I'm around.
0: I have two things that I was thinking about. Have you ever received? Two calls at once, or you're in the midst of someone contracting, and then another client calls you and says, Hey, uh, I need help. Yeah, totally. That happens? (laughs) Totally.
1: I mean, it's happened so rarely. It's only happened one time. And that was a really crazy experience because I was basically working for it was almost like four days. And, you know, the first birth was eight hours, unmedicated, you know, first time mother, really awesome, great birth. Like she was like singing and just, it was, it was awesome. And then as like she pushed out her baby, I got a text from my other client who was like, I'm starting to have, you know, starting to have some contractions. And, you know, just for people that don't realize, like if it's an unmedicated labor, it's a lot of, it's a lot more work in terms of like the support and the massage, like you're really with them, like, you know, toe to -to toe the whole time. And I basically like Gave her a hug, flew out of there, went to my other client who ended up being in labor, also unmedicated for, I think it was like 60-something hours, something like that. Oh. It was a long labor. Um,
0: That woman deserves a medal. Yeah,
1: she does. And so does her husband. I mean, or I think it was her boyfriend. He was a chef. And it, he was
0: making food for her?
1: No, we were at the hospital. But here's the thing that I think is so, like, it's like kind of an idiosyncratic thing, but I went to culinary school before I went to college. Mm. And there's like a, I'm saying dexterity for the second time today, but you're able to do the same thing again and again and again with precision. And that's a big part of dual work, like the contraction's over, she relaxes, you go back and you're pressing the same points in her back or you're doing the same massage again or you're getting her to do the same thing. And what was so cool about working with him in this birth, and I literally feel like I was working with him because every time we were about to go back to do whatever we were doing to make her comfortable, whether it was like she was on a rocking chair or whatever, he would put the setup together exactly the same. And it was so cool. And I was like, oh, like here's the other thing about this that I like. It's like that repetition and... That like precision and focus, um, it was cool. That was. It's funny. I haven't thought about the birth in a really long time, but it was long going from one to the other, but still really great.
0: Has there ever been conflict in the in the midst of this, where where a partner is disagreeing with your approach?
1: No, because like I am, like I'm here for I'm here for the good time. You know, I I I, I the good time. The good time. <laughs>
0: So, childbearing, good time. Good
1: time. Childbearing equals good time. Interesting. Well, I'm here to make it feel like a good time. Like, Mm. you know, I'm into the jokes. It seems like
0: a pain in the ass.
1: Well, I think it depends on how you look at it. You know, I think it's.
0: You're here for the jokes? Did you put that on your resume? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll be here. I'll be here for the jokes.
1: I feel like it's something that I work with a lot of super funny, like amazing like people. And I, I think the thing that always, cause if you don't laugh, you're crying, you know? And I feel like the childbirth experience, like you just said that you're kind of like childbirth equals good time. It's so easy to get very dark and kind of clinical or too kind of like out there about it. And sometimes it's just really good to keep it light and, you know, make fun of yourself and be self deprecating and, just try and bring some laughter into the birth room and i think because of that you know i've been able to connect with partners and and i really see them and their value in the experience i'm not like i'm just here for her you know i'm mm. i'm here for them too so i've never really had like conflict with a partner cuz usually partners and i are like i see what they need and they know i'm here for them too
0: so you're post prime is that you said you- you're not in your prime anymore.
1: <laughs> I'm. I. I guess I'm not as a in my, doula. Yeah, I would say. Well, I'm.
0: I didn't mean in life.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm just. I'm dying. <laughs> I'm old.
0: Thank God, I came over here and did this show with you then before <laughs> I'm, death.
1: I'm passing away.
0: Um, really good. This is gonna blow up.
1: Yeah. This. Is, this is it. It's my. It's, I'll be my posthumous. A mm, podcast, that word. just from the grave. Right. <laughs> but I'm past my prime in that I, I'm taking far, far, far less clients because I've kind of moved on to a new venture that still allows me to be very connected with that world. But I'll be focusing more in like education and coaching. And I also kind of also pare down clients to work on my book. And so I'm past a certain prime, but I'm kind of in a new swing. That's mm-hmm. um, been really fun. And exciting.
0: Let's talk about the business. Okay. I mean it starts next month. You've been working on it for it it was another business before but you're rebranding it and renaming it and seems to be a full retooling of of what you were doing. Yes. So why don't you give the mission statement.
1: Give us just give the spiel. So Loom. The
0: spiel in a way that you've not given a thousand times to other people.
1: Hmm.
0: Like between you and I.
1: Between you and I. Loom is about Helping people in a way that doesn't feel shitty. It's
0: mm, I don't know. I kind of like helping <laughs> people in a way that makes them feel really bad. That's just my thing. That's
1: the vibe. That's well, my new mm-hmm. business.
0: Actually, yeah. that's the thing I have after this. Yeah,
1: cool. Yeah, not not here for the laughs. Just here for the
0: make, shitty. Times. Make you feel bad. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like between friends. I mean, that's the thing. I I just feel like childbirth and reproductive wellness and parenting and. You know, and and even loss, like, you know, we are really focused at Loom about creating equity between birth and non-birth outcomes. So whether your pregnancy ends in live birth or you are having a miscarriage or an abortion, you still need acknowledgement. You still need support. You still need resources. And I think the whole space around pregnancy, parenting, reproductive health is so sterile and cold, or it's so granola and crunchy and kind of like light a candle, have a baby, that You can't find the midline, Mm -hmm. and I think both ends of the spectrum put people into a shame spiral and can make them feel really shitty about themselves or make them be really shitty to others that Mm. don't subscribe or prescribe to the same experience that they have felt has worked for them. So
0: By granola, you mean the preconception that I have, which is like it seems for the longest time in my head um and i did research that proved otherwise today but it it seemed like a white woman exercise
1: it's interesting i think you could say that it is appropriative cuz i think a lot of the practices that are considered granola do not stem from you know anglo culture it's usually some mixture of african or Mexican or Indian cultures and then kind of reappropriate or retooled into something that's more palatable or divorced from its like kind of original intent in some sense. Mm. So I do think the granola piece kind of lends itself to that maybe, but you can still be a person of color and be indulging in these kind of granola concepts that I'm kind of talking about. But I, I think what I was trying to say is, you know, I think a lot of the kind of reproductive wellness and just generally wellness space kind of has really co-opted a lot of spiritual bypass or has co-signed that that's an acceptable way to move through an experience, basically not really getting in tune with your actual feelings, Mm -hmm. your intellect around the experience and kind of, you know, replacing that with you know, things that you think are going to help you avoid what you can't really avoid, which is things like pain or things like the outcome that's going to find you no matter what you do. Mm. And so I think with Loom, we're just trying to say there are amazing holistic, whether it's Eastern or indigenous practices that are so helpful. And and we, let's bring those in, let's weave those in. But then also let's not vilify the medical establishment and, you know, Providers with really kind of layered and nuanced skill sets. Why don't we just have the two talking to each other so that people feel not shitty about themselves no matter what they choose? Mm.
0: In the New Yorker piece, it's described as uh, almost like an AA meeting. What happens here stays here. No one takes pictures. This is not Instagram.
1: (laughs) That's my co-founder, Quinn. I love her so much. She and I, yeah, we have a kind of a a rigorous, or at least there is a lot of rigor behind our intent with Loom that it isn't going to be this grammable, like, perfect mm-hmm. um, kind of vignette into that time in people's lives. Like, we want to make space for the yucky, fucked up, weird, intense stuff because it's just, it's right there, you know, it's right there. And if we can give that more space and more oxygen. It's like going back to the concept of like a healthy amount of fear. It's like if we just make space for the things that are uncomfortable, we make more space for comfort because as soon as you hear someone else is going through a similarly uncomfortable situation, you feel less alone. You feel less isolated. And I think it's happening now. I do feel like vulnerability is the new currency. I think people are talking about how uncomfortable they are. It's like it is starting to... We're kind of riding that wave, especially in the c- political climate we're in. But I think what she's trying to bring across there is that people should be, feel safe to dump mm. without judgment, and we're not asking anybody to come to Loom and be perfect and like, yeah. have a great outfit on and like just just be yourself. And I, like we're okay
0: with that. I think the Instagram part speaks to people's attempts at like performative vulnerability. Where it's like I am being vulnerable, and by the way, please know that I'm being vulnerable. And um, it sounds like y- you have no interest in that in the business.
1: No, and and I also have no interest in it in my real life. Yeah. So. well,
0: I, that I know, I, I know that already. <laughs> What's what was jarring to me is I I you uh, I mean I read the Jezebel thing today. Sure. And um, it seemed not congruent with what I know of you and what. I know of this business. Yeah. It seemed like a fundamental misreading in a lot of projections. And I guess I just wanted to ask you about it and what you made of her take.
1: Well, it's so interesting because we've kind of been talking about that. Not that much internally because I think, you know, we realize when you're dealing with reproduction, women's bodies, you're a female-founded business. You, We already knew there would be some kind of X on our back mm-hmm. in some sense. And um, I think her take was ill-informed. You know, she never sent an email. She didn't inquire. And what's funny...
0: She she, didn't ask for interviews.
1: Yeah, no interviews. No interviews, no email. um, No fact-checking there. And what's interesting is, you know, I'm actually a pretty avid reader of Jezebel. I think there's a lot that they do there around people of color, um, feminist narratives, you know, reproductive rights. And I actually already... Been, encountered that author in some other pieces, and I was like, Oh, like, I think she'll get us if we ever are in her purview, she'll get what we're doing. And you know, she really didn't, and I think a, a big part of that is she's. From Canada, where, you know, social services are widely available. And there's right. definitely, I think for her, at least from the tenor of the piece, which I didn't read, actually, I just, you know, I'm kind of like, whatever. I'm not going to read that. But from what I was told was that she had issue or took issue with the for-profit component of the business, right. which I think really boils down to a very interesting thing that I think is a little under discussed. And I feel, and I might not be describing this paradigm correctly, but, I do feel that there is this kind of patriarchal accepted or patriarchally created misogyny that is, you know, taken on or internalized by women where there isn't this mutual celebration of other women and what they're doing. Mm. And I think if she had taken the time to reach out to us and and talk to us about what we were doing, she would have taken back... And written a very different piece mm-hmm. because the for-profit component of our business is we have to be for-profit to survive the problem actually is with services that are as you know passion orientated and civically minded is what we're doing at loom is if you don't have funding you don't get to exist right and when you want to lean into the more nonprofit space to, you know, support a business like this. You have all this red tape. You have all of these cutbacks, financial issues that come up that mitigate your ability to serve a wider right audience.
0: And you also can't pay your employees a wage that is doable.
1: Exactly, and that just boils down to just women being empowered mm-hmm. and it, being empowered in their careers and being empowered in commerce. And I think that's for me. I feel like that is a larger narrative that was at play with this piece in terms of us, it's like, why is there so much vitriol for something that you haven't researched? And why are we really coming up against, you know, that type of intensity when there's not a lot of inquiry to the, to the foundation of Mm -hmm. what we're doing. So, yeah. But I mean, who cares? I mean, honestly, I'm unbothered because I've been doing this work for a long time. I love what I do and I feel really confident about what we're trying to bring to the community and what we want to bring to more people around the country and if people are going to be uncomfortable with how we're doing it from time to time, that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's fine. You know, reproduction, birth, pregnancy, parenting makes people uncomfortable.
0: I think the thing that we're trying to hit on, and I think they don't quite hit the mark because there's not much to hit, but there's a conversation about exclusivity Mm -hmm. and I do wonder. I mean, your business that costs two hundred dollars a year, mm-hmm. right? Which is pretty fair. Um, and I and I read stuff about how compared to competitors, it's less, and mm-hmm. you're offering. I mean, it it sounds pretty good to me. Again, I'm not the most informed on that. Sure. What do you make of the exclusive remark? Do you think that's at all accurate? It's
1: totally inaccurate because the exclusive piece is is not there insofar as maybe there's exclusivity if financially you don't have the means to afford say a $200 membership and maybe you can't afford the prices of the classes or services that we're offering mm-hmm. fine economic exclusivity i'll have to take that but in terms of access absolutely not we you know we opened in june with a founding membership program and that was just to get some initial interest. It went incredibly well and we just had to go to a waiting list while we were finishing our build out and getting clear on kind of what the exact need was going to be. But come this Friday, we're opening up the membership again and there's no application process. You just fill it out and everybody gets in. I think the concept of the membership piece is more mm. kind of a fiscal, it's like fiscal verbiage as opposed to we look over every application and only certain people get in. Absolutely not. It's it's for everybody.
0: You're in this unique position where you're trying to do something right. You're trying to do something good for other people. And yet, invariably, there's a business component to it that you need to participate in so as to pay for your employees, pay for the services for your customers so that they're properly cared for. And um, I don't know if capitalism is like conducive to pleasing all parties.
1: It's not. And, you know, we knew that going in, which is why I think a lot of our pricing was meticulously, you know, wrought over to make sure that we're a- affordable at some price point to someone. And like, does $200 work over 12 months? And like, you know, our range is like a $20 class to like a $450 class. Like we've really thought about it. And we live in a world that's controlled by commerce to try and divorce ourselves from that in order to have this like you know philosophical you know right. aim is just totally insane and well it also
0: it's not helpful no it's it's something you can write on a page but it's like in people's day-to-day life her intellectual argument and I don't I'm if you read it I think you would be like I get where you're coming from but it's not reality
1: no it's not and again that's the internet. I mean, you're going to get pieces like that that are just kind of pontificating without a real point and, you know, want to have a good clickbait piece. And, you know, that's fine. I, I just think once we're open, you know, next month and people are, you know, getting to experience and are reaping the benefits of the community and the education and, and all of that, I think it'll just be something that's in the rear, in the rear view in many ways.
0: Mm. So, what do you want for this? What do you mean? For the company.
1: Oh. I would like to see Loom really penetrate the market around Penetrate. I know. It's a lot of it's a, I got it. I know what that sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I, I we I think what we want to do is just really disrupt the market around, you know, reproductive pregnancy parenting education. Right now, if you go online and you look for that, there's nothing and I think the whole thing needs a big, like, reboot, but in a way that's not so precious and that deals with real issues. And um, I think that's kind of what we're wanting to do is just help shift the narrative and get people on board to be supportive of birth and non-birth outcomes. And it doesn't matter where you're birthing or how you're parenting, like, we just need to be curious and empathic and um, informed as opposed to, you know, myopic and shaming and divisive, you know, Mm. because I do think that's a lot of what's there in that space right now.
0: Does building out the brand ever get in the way of doing the actual work?
1: Uh, It does a little bit, especially now being in build-up mode and all of that. But I still have a few clients and that keeps me in touch with the work. And um, I work really closely with a lot of the doulas that we have on our team and just interacting with them and seeing them interact on the channel that we have it keeps me tapped in. I would never want to stop doing births, even if I was super busy teaching and, and doing other things, because it's such a amazing experience that just immediately reconnects you to life in a way that very few other things do. And yeah, so I mean, it gets in the way, but it's it's a decision. Like I've made it that way, mm-hmm. um, but I can always make more or less space for that.
0: You know, something I was thinking about on the ride over and. Throughout this conversation, is that there is something inside of you, and I don't know what, and I guess I'm asking what you think it is that wants to facilitate creation. I mean, you were a chef before this, and you did, I think, PR before
1: for a minute,
0: yeah, for a minute and then hot minute, and then maybe not that hot, (laughs) lukewarm, tepid, a tepid minute, cool, cool. Any other synonyms? (laughs)
1: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Having fun. Yeah. Sorry. Good.
0: Nice to see you. Cool.
1: Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but there's a real part of you that has this desire, I think, to be part of creation in a way that is really beautiful. And I don't think a lot of us have that same desire.
1: That's so interesting. I've never heard anybody kind of describe it that way. I guess so. I, I, I just want to be in it, you know? I want to be a part of something that's growing. And I like watching change and and just, you know, being around that. And I think it feels good to be creating what we're creating right now and in, in just the time that we're in. I think people need each other and people need truly safe spaces. And, um, yeah, it feels – it's interesting, yeah. I guess I do like to – Make things. (laughs) (laughs) Shocked by my comment. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just a lot of introspection that's, I don't know, forced introspection that's happening through this conversation and not forced in a negative way. It's just I don't, I'm never that insightful about myself. It's just interesting to have it be described that way. So, but I, it resonates.
0: Why do you think you're not insightful about yourself?
1: Well, I am intuitive, and I, like, I, can ex- I can express how I feel and, like, what something is stemming from. But I think to kind of go beyond, say, the feelings and kind of into the intellect of it and see myself the way that you just described is something I'm just not capable of. I don't know how many people are capable of mm. labeling themselves in that way, whether it's negative or positive, you know?
0: Mm. I don't know how many people I guess. <laughs> I thought it was fairly obvious.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think on that. Okay, I'm think on that. Yeah.
0: Do you want to be a mom?
1: Yeah, definitely. For sure. Probably not in a massive rush because I've I I get so much baby access and so much kind of pregnancy energy. It's
0: like I figured you'd be. Sick of children by now,
1: I'm not though I love them. and i <laughs>
0: <laughs> you love other people's children,
1: yeah, and I love other people when they're pregnant. i I mean, I, I just There's I'm into something it. going on I don't, I don't really know. I don't I'm just, into it. I just, it's I don't know it's just it's such a it's a finite period of time, finite and explosive in many ways. It's just like kind of crazy change. And I don't know. babies are great. Babies are great when you, aren't scared of them. You know, it's like, I've had so much access that I just can really tap into just how sweet it can be, like how wonderful it can be. And I also really know how horrible it can be too. I I know what that first year after having a baby can be like for your relationship and your career and all these different things. So I think because I've just seen, I've seen the long and the short, I feel excited about the experience just because it's like it's like kind of a crapshoot. You don't know. And I, I kind of like that unpredictability of, about it. It's like a big opportunity for just to grow as a person.
0: Mm. If and when you have your child or children, I'm interested. Like the New Yorker log line of you, someone who knows best.
1: <laughs> Never let that down.
0: <laughs> no, it's a good thing to have. <laughs> I guess like I, w- I want to be able to listen back to this and five, ten years. So I'm interested, what are you going to tell your kid about how to exist in the world? Oh,
1: wow. I've, just to take care of yourself, you know, and try and enjoy things when they're happening, like really, really, really enjoy them if something feels good, like just be in that emotion as opposed to like trying to get to the next thing and just like find someone you really love. I think that's so important. A real partner that is good to you and kind to you and allows you to be kind to yourself. And I think those are kind of my things and find like passion, like something you really love and just like get in there and like get obsessed with it and give as much as you can to, to that thing. And Maybe also don't think you can't do things. I had a lot of mental blocks growing up around certain things. You know, I used to think, like, I couldn't do math. And then when I went to nursing school, I, like, took chemistry and, like, got all A's. And I I just, there's a lot of, like, things we tell ourselves that we can't do. And then when you actually have to do them, you can if you just, like, apply yourself. How's that sound?
0: Good. (laughs) I think you can do a lot. (laughs)
1: yeah it's yeah that's a that was a doozy of a question Mm and thought about that really really going deep sam Uh Mm uh-huh yeah um deep dive erica
0: (laughs) yes thank you so much for coming on
1: thank you for having me this is great
0: of course so long so long America's debut book called Nurture is now on, on Amazon and wherever else you get your books. If you'd like to learn more about her new upcoming business called Loom, you should do so at www.thisisloom.com. We'll include more info about that and more in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Chennai, Social media by Max Schip. Our assistant producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan I'm Sam Goso. Thank you for listening to Talk Music. We'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues. unconventional awards. See you there.